0: So John 16, verse 33, Jesus speaking here says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How's that for a three-point sermon all in one sentence? Point number one, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Point number two, take heart. Point number three, I have overcome the world. Tonight, we're going to look at how Jesus overcame the world. And I believe that this is important and necessary for us to consider so that we can know how to navigate the days and the trouble ahead. As followers of Jesus, the Jesus way is the only way. We know that for salvation, but it's also the only way to live and order our lives. The Jesus way is the only way. So for us to stop, to pause, to take a moment to consider how did Jesus overcome the world is immensely important for us. Jesus promises, in this world, you will have trouble. Notice that he doesn't say, because I've overcome the world, you're going to be spared as the body of Christ from ever entering into trouble. No. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. We're going to begin tonight and spend a good chunk of tonight in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. So if you've got a Bible or device with you. Turn to Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Now, this is going to talk about some things that we don't see every day, right? These are uh, not like common parables, things that we can relate to easily. Don't get lost in that. Here's what I want you to get lost in. Get lost in this vision of the majesty and the beauty of God. I would encourage you actually to maybe just even close your eyes. If it's easier for you to engage looking at the text, do that. But if you know yourself and you're prone to get distracted... Close your eyes and allow, as I read this passage, the majesty and the beauty of God to wash over you. Just put yourself in the room with Him. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts had been stripped of their authority But were allowed to live for a period of time And in my vision at night I looked And there before me was one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven He approached the ancient of days And was led into his presence He was given authority Glory and sovereign power All nations and peoples Of every language worshipped him His dominion is an everlasting dominion That will not pass away And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Three big picture ideas I want you to pull from this text. Number one, the majesty of God, the ancient of days. A throne on fire, wheels ablaze, a river of fire proceeding from the throne. Thrones are set in place in the ancient of days, the eternal one, the one who existed before Genesis 1, steps in the room and takes his seat. Thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 are attending. And then we're given this strange little passage in the middle. It's about the short reign of the Antichrist. That's the second big picture idea I want you to grab onto. And sometimes we can get really entertained and amused. We need to know the details of these things. But I want you to see the the brevity of the Antichrist reign next to the eternal dominion of the Son of Man. We need to see it in comparison to the paragraph that comes immediately afterwards. His reign is short and his destruction is total. He's thrown into a lake of fire. That's about the extent of what you need to know at this time for the Antichrist. Yeah. I'm not saying don't study in more detail, but for tonight, know that in this passage, the little horn, his boastful words, his arrogance, his scoffing at God, is short-lived and his destruction is total. And then the glory of the Son of Man coming in his Father's kingdom. His is an eternal dominion. His is an everlasting kingdom without end. One of the reasons I think we need to stare at passages like these is because this was one of Jesus' favorite passages. More than any other title that Jesus is referred to in the four Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. He often even referred to himself, more than the word Christ or Messiah, he's referred to as the Son of Man 78 times in the Gospels. In a second, I'm going to show you that he wasn't just saying, I'm a human being, when he said that. He was saying something way more significant. And the people who lived in early first century uh, Israel would have recognized exactly what he was saying, which is why he received such crazy responses when he would make that claim. We need to understand what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus references passages frequently, he's almost saying, I really like that one. You should study that one out. You should get that one printed on your island. That's an important one to me. You might be wondering what any of this has to do with this whole topic of overcoming the Jesus way. And we just need to hold on for a second because before we get to the practical implications for our lives, we need to get an exalted view of who Jesus is. We need to see Jesus reigning as king, we need to see Jesus ascended in glory where he's at right now. Often we preach the gospel and we stop at the resurrection. How many sermons have you ever heard on the ascension? Guys, he ascended and is exalted as king over all the universe right now. That's part of the gospel. I started meditating on this reality the other day. I was like, why do I never think about the ascension of Jesus and the fact that he's exalted at the right hand of the Father right now? It's it's a frequently quoted uh, thing all throughout the New Testament. At least eight different books of the New Testament refer to Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. Twelve different specific verses use that exact phraseology seated at the right hand of the Father. This was something that was embedded in the mindset of when they preached the gospel. Where is Jesus at now? What is Jesus doing now? What did Jesus come to do? We need to get the ascension in our hearts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is taken up in a cloud. In plain view for all the disciples to see. And he just disappears in the clouds. And we know that they're staring there. I think it's ironic. Two angels show up. And they say, why are you staring into heaven? In the same way he went, he'll one day come back. And here's the beauty of Daniel chapter 7. I think we actually have a small window into what happened on the other side of the clouds. Picture this. From the earthly perspective, they're looking up. And they see Jesus disappear in the clouds. And angels come down. Then they say, in the same way he went, he'll also come back. Now, don't take me out of context. Daniel 7 is about the return of Jesus. It's quite clear because of the context of the entire passage, the books being opened, the Antichrist being thrown into the lake of fire, Jesus coming back in the clouds of glory. But I also think it's a telescoping, like a collapsing of two events, because it also says he went into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Let me tell you, nobody just walks up to the throne of God. Nobody just walks up fully to the throne of God. And what is he handed when he goes up to the throne of God? An eternal dominion, an everlasting reign. He receives his kingdom in heaven, which then he brings to earth in his father's glory, riding on the clouds. Major passage. So we have a window. I mean, just imagine that. We get to know from this side of eternity, you know, staring up through the clouds, he disappears. Boom, What happened on the other side? We need to get throne room branded in our mind. Found an old note that I wrote the other day. And I don't know when I wrote it, but it encouraged me. It just said that warfare doesn't surround the throne of God. Only worshipless. And these are exhausting and trying and weary times that we're living in. And we need to know that there's a rest in God that's found in worship when we enter into the throne. When we get a fresh revelation of Jesus and the one seated upon the throne, it actually lives us, lifts us above what's going on in the natural. We kind of get out of the whole horizontal funk that we're living in, and we're reminded of the one that's seated upon the throne. Right. We need to enter into that place often, the place of intercession, and the place of worship and meditation and contemplation. So that we can live into the reality that Jesus is king and he reigns. And so as I began to meditate again and pray and consider the significance of Jesus' ascension as his enthronement in heaven, here's a quick list of just a few things that were accomplished, why this actually matters. Not just the fact that it happened, but why it matters. Realities that would not be established right now had Jesus not ascended. Number one, Jesus is king. Everyone's like, okay, we knew that. Jesus is king. Here's what I want you to consider. The kindest, most humble, gentle, meek, All-powerful, wise, all-knowing, full of understanding, man in the entire universe is also the king of the entire universe. That's part of the good news. You know that the gospel doesn't stop with your sins are forgiven. But the gospel of the kingdom, which is the gospel that Jesus entrusted the disciples to carry to the ends of the earth, is actually the good news that Jesus is king. Because when we think about who's reigning, it's good news. It doesn't stop with the forgiveness of our sins. What does that give you? That gets you a ticket punch to heaven and then live however you want. Unlike if I realize that the good news is that Jesus is a good king who forgives sins and shows mercy. I live under the kingship of Jesus. And I live my life as a declaration that Jesus is king. That's the full gospel. So that's reality number one. Jesus is king. Number two, Jesus is forever our great high priest. Jesus went into the holy of holies, the better tabernacle, the real tabernacle in heaven, and once and for all time offered his blood to forever cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because he was also human, one like the son of man, he also understands our weakness, our temptation, and was tried and tested in every way just like us. You marry these two realities together: Jesus is king, and Jesus is a priest, and you have an intercessor sitting on the throne. There is an intercessor sitting on the throne. And every time the Father sees Jesus, he remembers, show mercy. One of the ways we see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in Romans chapter 8 is interceding on the behalf of the saints, and the elect. That's a comforting reality, guys, that that's not possible unless Jesus ascended. He's been given the promised Holy Spirit to pour out on us. That's one of the realities established in the New Testament. Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, has been given the promised Holy Spirit. So that it could be given to us. Jesus said, you can't receive the Holy Spirit unless I go back to the Father. Right? It's actually better for you that I go so that the comforter, so that the advocate, so that the counselor, so that the teacher can come. That doesn't happen unless Jesus ascends. Why was Pentecost after the ascension? He had to go up. I love this one. He shamed the powers and the principalities. Ephesians talks about that. That he did it in plain view of the powers and the principalities. And God did it to shame them. They had to watch Jesus. One like the Son of Man. Ascend to the right hand of the Father. And receive eternal dominion. They had to watch. As satanic and demonic powers and principalities. The power of the air. Had to watch Jesus go up. And give a name that's higher than every name. That's awesome And you know that Ephesians establishes Ephesians 3, 10 or 11 I forget what verse it is That the church is supposed to make that declaration Not just with their mouth But the actual picture of his covenant Body in the earth Is supposed to make a declaration To the powers and the principalities of the air That Jesus is king That's a high view of the church That's not Sunday service That's something far deeper. That's a covenant reality that declares and proclaims that Jesus is king to the powers of the earth. This reality establishes that Jesus is holding the plan. That song that they sing in heaven, Jesus is worthy. They're not just saying he's a good God. John's weeping and they're saying there's none found worthy. They're saying there's one able there's one capable, all those things that makes him the best king in the universe, oh, the humblest man in the whole earth is also holding the plans regarding the end of time, regarding God's entire plan for the scope of humanity. Yeah. I'm comforted the fact, by the fact that Jesus is holding the plan. And the last reality, again established from Acts chapter 1 in the same way he went up, he's also coming down. He's coming back, and this time he's coming back with the line of the tribe of Judah with the kingdom. And he's going to establish it on earth as it is in heaven. This reality is immensely important for us to grasp. We have to grab onto the exaltation of Jesus. So now that I've taken kind of what feels like probably a rabbit trail. From how do we overcome the Jesus way. To where Jesus is at now. To what he's doing. To how he's reigning. How do we connect this back to Jesus overcoming. Well let's just ask how did Jesus get there. How did Jesus overcome. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is on trial. Before the high priest, this religious council before Caiaphas, the high priest of the time. And they're asking him all these questions. They're bringing people, bringing false accusations, and they're getting frustrated. You can feel their frustration. Why aren't you saying anything? Aren't you going to answer these charges? Don't you have any response for this? Silent, silent, silent. Which I just love the shocking meekness of Jesus. That like a lamb, he's silent before the shears. But then he speaks up. They say, just tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? He says, you have said so. And then guess what passage he quotes? Daniel chapter 7. He says, and I say to you, you will see one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, attended with the Father's angels. You have to consider the context. From an earthly perspective, it looks like Jesus is being overcome. He's going down for the last count. And he's saying, this is about to be my exaltation. You think you have me on trial? I have you on trial. You're going to put me in front of a kangaroo court? I'm about to walk into heaven's court. Into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And receive an everlasting kingdom. How did Jesus overcome? He lost his life. He gave it. And it looked like from an earthly perspective he was losing. But from heaven's perspective, he was winning the ultimate victory.
1: When he claims this verse,
0: this son of man thing, this is where we can know that he's not just saying, I'm a human being. It's after these words come out of Jesus' mouth that Caiaphas says, he's spoken blasphemy. What was blasphemous about what Jesus was saying? He was making himself equal with God. He was claiming his divine status. He wasn't just saying, I'm a human being. He's saying, that Daniel 7 figure, that's me. And you have to, again, grasp the importance of this revelation. I was on the phone with my friend Ben Atkinson. He's spoken here before, an IHOP guy. And just has such depth in the word. And I cheered something every time I talk lately. I feel like I'm sharing out Daniel 7. And he goes, do you know that even though uh, the chapter 7 comes after chapter 6, it's actually not written in chronological order. The Daniel 7 vision preceded Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is where we get the lifestyle of Daniel that he prayed morning, noon, and night. Here's what I want you to grasp. The Daniel 7 vision precedes the Daniel 6 lifestyle. You get a vision of exalted Christ Jesus. And it pulls you into a lifestyle where you just want to stare at him and you want to give yourself to the plans and purposes of God in the earth. The Daniel 7 vision of the exalted one like a son of man precedes the Daniel 6 lifestyle. When you try to pull people into a more consecrated lifestyle who have not seen enough of Jesus, it becomes religion and legalism. But give people a vision of the beauty of Jesus, and all of a sudden it's a free will love offering. And it's the thing they long to do. It's Mary of Bethany anointing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping them with her hair. (sighs) Guys, we've got to get a vision of exalted Jesus. And we've got to question, how did he do it? How did he do it? He didn't just do it for us and secure these wonderful things, these seven things I just listed off. But he also gave us an example to walk in. Here's another reference that illustrates the same points. Revelation 5, 5 through 6. The elder says to John, see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. There's that overcoming word, he's triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. But when John looks, he said, then I saw a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures of the elders. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah. He has triumphed. He is worthy to take the scroll and loose its seals. John looks up from his weeping and he sees before him a lamb that looks like it's been slain. Earth's perspective, lamb who's been slain, heaven's perspective, the triumphing, reigning, roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. You have to get heaven's perspective on your life, especially in this season. Because otherwise, we're going to cling to our rights and follow the American dream rather than get God's dream for his son, Jesus. And ask us what part we can play in it. Yeah. For Daniel it looked like positioning himself before a window three times a day. And looking towards Jerusalem. And I don't know exactly what he was praying for. It might have been for the captives. But he might have been saying, put your son on the throne inside. Because yeah. how can you not change after you see that? He didn't just read about it. He saw it. He saw resurrected, ascended Jesus coming back to the earth in His Father's glory to set up His kingdom on Zion's holy hill. Is it any wonder that after that event, three times a day, He looked towards Jerusalem and would pray? I think He had a raging desire in His spirit to see Jesus ascend the throne in Zion, which happens at the second coming of Jesus. That's a life marked by the plans and purposes of God. Consider Stephen. This is where it gets practical for us. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. From Earth's perspective, looks like he's losing, right? You've got a whole mob of people that have driven you to the city's edge so they're picking up rocks, getting ready to stone you. What happens right before he goes down for the last count? After he's been bloodied and beaten, probably barely standing, he lifts his eyes. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, check this out, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing where? At the right hand of the Father. And look, he said, you've got to get this. I see heaven open. What term did he use to describe Jesus and the Son of Man? Standing at the right hand of God. From Earth's perspective, looks like this man is losing. This is his last breath. And maybe he's even a young man. Maybe he's 20 years old. Has his whole life in front of him. He could have been a good career man. Maybe he could have been a good religious man. Could have joined the sect of the scribes, the Pharisees. He could have been a respected religious leader. From Earth's perspective, he's losing it all. But he looks up and he gets a vision of exalted Jesus. And Jesus is not seated on the throne in this instance. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. Ready to receive the first martyr of the church. How do we overcome the Jesus way? How do we do it the way Jesus did it? And did he just do it for us or did he call us into the same lifestyle? Go with me to Matthew 16 real quick. Matthew chapter 16. I want you to see this theme popping up all through the Gospels. I'm not introducing a new idea This is the gospel of the kingdom Matthew 16 The context is A passage you're probably familiar with Right after Jesus has asked the disciples Who do people say I am Some say Jeremiah Some say John the Baptist Some say Elijah Who do you say I am you're the Messiah The son of God And he says flesh and blood did not reveal this to you Peter this was given to you by the spirit of the living God Immediately afterwards Jesus starts Describing he resolutely sets his face Towards Jerusalem he knows exactly what's Going to happen to him there he's preparing his disciples For the events that are about to unfold It's the reason he came to earth he's coming to die And then he has to rebuke Peter Because Peter says I'll never let this happen to you my lord Right but catch what he says Jesus responds to him he says get behind me Satan you are a stumbling block For me you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What was the stumbling block that Peter did not have God's eternal plans and purposes in mind? He had his own human concerns, self-preservation, and comfort in mind, and that was the stumbling block to the reason that Messiah had come to the earth. And then immediately afterwards, in the passage that follows, you're probably very familiar with this. It says, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me." For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone gain in exchange for their soul? Gotta catch this. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each one according to what they have done. What precedes the reward that the Son of Man is bringing in the clouds of glory? Each one taking up their cross, denying themselves, and overcoming in the Jesus way and in the Jesus spirit. And each one, before the Son of Man comes, will have health, wealth, prosperity, and a perfect life in the here and now. No? What good is it if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? The context is, you have in mind human concerns, not God's plans. You're seeing this from a worldly perspective. You're looking at the win-loss column from the wrong perspective. I need you to see this from heaven's perspective, Jesus is saying. To find your life in the kingdom is to lose your life. But in order to live out that type of lifestyle, we have to have a view of exalted Jesus coming in the clouds of glory. Because yeah. that's how Jesus ends the passage. There is something greater than I'm reaching for and trying to apprehend. So therefore, what I lose in this life looks minuscule in comparison. Another example. Revelation twelve eleven. We all know they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life so much as to shrink back from death. It says in the beginning, they overcame, right? And a lot of times we just quote the first half of that verse, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. But the other part is that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. So it says they overcame. Just two chapters later, Revelations 13, 7, it talks about for a period of time the Antichrist, that little boastful horde, is actually given dominion over the saints. And it says for a season he is allowed to overcome them. Hold on, Revelations 12 told me that they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and not loving their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And then two chapters later I'm told that for a short period of time, the Antichrist has actually given dominion and the ability to overcome the saints. So who's overcoming? Is the scripture in contradiction? Or do we have yet another illustration of the exact same thing? That from the world's perspective, it looks like they're being overcome as they're losing their lives for Jesus. But as each one of the martyrs goes to join the Lord in the clouds of glory, having said, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. You did it the Jesus way. You overcame the Jesus way. You didn't love your life so much as to cling on to, it, but you gave it up. That whole get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block, gets walked out in a very practical way in Peter's life. Think about it. He says, in his human zeal and in his self-confidence, he says, I'll never deny you. I'm even willing to die for you right now. And Jesus says, die for me. Before the rooster crows, they'll deny three times if you even know me. We know how the story walks out. And bitter weeping settles on Peter, right? What was he trying to do in that moment to the young servant girl while he's warming himself by the fire, while his master's in their standing trial? Quote, him, Daniel said it. He's holding on to self-comfort, preservation, trying to save his life. But as soon as the moment lifts, and he feels like it's too late, because Jesus went into the ground. Immense sorrow and bitterness settles on him. Luckily, it only lasted a couple days for Peter because he got restored by the Lord on the beach. But that feeling is going to settle on some people for an eternity. Because until their dying breath... They're going to try to hold tight to self preservation and everything they have in this life that they could never keep, anyways. Wow. Peter was a three day picture of what some people are going to spend forever and ever doing. Wow. But on the other side of that, Peter gets a glimpse of lose my life is the only way to find it. I don't want that feeling to settle on me. Yeah. How do we overcome the Jesus way? Number one, see things from heaven's vantage point. This primarily means having an eternal perspective where we learn to weigh all of our decisions and their consequences and their fruit or lack of fruit in light of eternity. And in, turn of, in terms of God's scope, His plans, His purposes, and ultimately wanting to see Jesus ascend the hill in Zion. An eternal perspective that shapes our decisions and our priorities. Number two, this means having a kingdom perspective. One of the other reasons it's so key for us to understand the height of Christ's exaltation is that when you get a glimpse of how high he went, you'll start to understand how low he went. As high as he went is as low as he went down. The most exalted being in the entire universe is also the humblest person who's ever lived. That's another reason why it's good news that Jesus is king. The most exalted being, the name above every name, who ascended in plain view of all the powers, the principalities of the air, is the humblest man I've ever Because he was there before. He left the Lord to come down to wash feet to die on the cross. That's why the meekness of Jesus to not even respond to a bunch of liars and false accusations is just shocking. That's part of the beauty of Jesus. When you start to stare at the gap, it's not just appreciating the exaltation, but it's appreciating the full scope of the gap, the way that he went down the ladder. But again, he didn't just do it for us to secure certain things, but also to give us an example to walk in. It's the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom, up is down. That while we live on this earth, we're not looking for self-exaltation, but we're looking for how low we can go, how much we can serve to be like Jesus. Jesus actually never rebuked people when they talked about how do we become great. He just redefined greatness for them. Sometimes he did it by bringing a little child in their midst. He says, you want to be great, become like this. one." Sometimes he did it by serving. He says, the greatest amongst you will be the one who serves the most, right? And this is not of a striving type of spirit. It's trying to get into the spirit of Jesus. Letting that same mindset that was in Christ also be found in you. Again, it's the idea that the way to find your life is to lose it. It's living in the opposite spirit. And the gospel of the kingdom requires endurance on the part of the saints. Jesus said, He who endures to the end will be saved. It's not about a prayer, it's about a lifestyle. Yeah. Shaped by gospel realities. Sure. Not just a message that we celebrate, we should definitely celebrate, but it should also be a plan that shapes our life, shapes our community, shapes our priorities. And we're not trying to hold on to anything Not independence, not autonomy Not the ability to choose But willingly surrendering Laying everything down and yielding To make a declaration Jesus is king Every time you turn the other cheek You make a declaration Jesus is king Every time you humble yourself And serve others in love You make a declaration Jesus is king Every time you choose eternal reward over instant gratification, you make a declaration, Jesus is king. Every time you get lost in worship, or you worship when you're not feeling it at all, you make a declaration, Jesus is king. Every time you preach the gospel, you make a declaration, Jesus is king. Every time you share even a cup of cold water with somebody in need, you make a declaration, Jesus is king. Every time you respond in meekness rather than human anger, you make a declaration, Jesus is King. Every time you take up your cross and follow Jesus, you make a declaration, Jesus is King. The promise, in this world you will have trouble. The encouragement, take heart. The consideration for I have overcome the world. If we want to be Jesus followers, we have to walk in the Jesus way. It's the only yeah. way. His kingdom is coming here. We set up on earth as it is in heaven. The band can come back up. We're going to worship. And I think either that second or third song is very appropriate as we just posture our hearts. To ask the Lord, what are your concerns? I want to be preoccupied with God's concerns, not my concerns. I want to ask what's on your hearts tonight what would move your heart, and how you want me to respond. I know that this is kind of a heavy word, but when we really consider it, guys, it's like a call to re-sign up for basic Christianity. He said anybody who wants to be a disciple. And I think, I'm not one of those people who's going to be sensational and say, bizarre things are happening, therefore we're in the end of the world. There's more sure markers I'm looking for scripturally revealed that have to take place before the end of the world. We might be there, we may be very quickly approaching those days And every time I hear strange news I don't say it's the end of the world. but I'm watching and I'm waiting based on the key indicators he gave me to look for but what I do know is that in the end times persecution is going to ramp up and so is the spread of the gospel. Which means that if the gospel is going into hostile places there needs to be a whole lot of people who are willing to lay their life down. We might not be there yet, but how do you lay a foundation to give the ultimate yes through a thousand smaller yeses every single day? Through a lifestyle living in the opposite kingdom. What is most of the rage been in this last season that we've been stripped of our rights and our privileges, and we're comfortable? We don't like it. But the goal of the gospel is not to hang on to your rights, but to lose your life. To make the declaration that Jesus is King, and that's good news. It's not like, oh, God really wants me to do obedience today. What a begrudging king I serve. No, it's good news that Jesus is king. That he's exalted now. That he hasn't left us alone. He's poured out his Holy Spirit. He's with us even now in the third person of the Trinity. These are beautiful and precious realities. Another reference to the greatness that we think this is such a bold question. The two brothers say Can we sit when you come in your kingdom? Can we sit on the right and the left side of you? And Jesus, his question to them is, he doesn't even rebuke them for asking about greatness. He says, can you drink for the bitter cup of suffering I'm getting ready to drink? Basically saying, you want to be great in the kingdom, or are you ready to suffer with me? Yeah. Guys, this is not common in the American church. We want our best life now, and Jesus is saying, lose the best years of your life, lose the best, all of it to gain what you can never lose. Yeah. This is a total perspective shift, and it's got to go deep right? It's not a t-shirt. This is something we need to enter into. That's why I prayed to the beginning. Give us the courage to step into this, right? I want you guys to stand to your feet as we get ready to worship.